I hope you've all had some of that absolutely delicious food and we are really honoured that in fact one of the caterers is also uh, a local Ngunnawal man and Richie Allen has agreed to come and formally welcome us to this land of his. So can you please join me in welcoming Richie Allen. Awesome, thank you very much. First of all, I'd like to start off by paying my respects to the Ngunnawal ancestors. It's important that we recognise the ancestors because of the footprints that they've left behind that we follow each and every day of our lives. It's important that we look for those footprints as well because they're the footprints that have lasted the testament of time for over 100,000 years. And not even science dates those footprints back. And it makes you question why that Mother Earth keeps these footprints around. So each and every day of our lives, we look for these footprints because they're the safe passages through this land. That's why we look for them. I'd also like to pay my respects to none of our elders, past, present, and also like myself, those that are emerging as well. It's important that those that are emerging take forward steps forward to also do a welcome to country. But also recognise that our elders are the knowledge holders. And we're just learning in this journey of culture that didn't get lost, but just paused for a moment in time. And it's important that we recognise that. Nothing in our culture is never lost. Because when it pauses, it just reminds us that we need to get out and look for it again and start it back up again. And that's what I've been doing for the past 20 years from my mum's country, is learning. I actually moved to Canberra for a different reason. But my mum moved back here and she reminded me that culture shouldn't always be at the forefront of, of what we do. And that's what we do each and every day. We educate people in schools, businesses, companies. And I urge you, every time you take a step outside every morning, to have a look at your journey, your cultural journey, your cultural lives, and integrate it into your lives each and every day. I'd also like to pay my respects to other brothers and sisters that are here today as well. They recognise that coming together is important because that's what our people did. They came together for reasons. They met just like you are here today for purposes to keep those footprints alive that embed it into our hearts every day. And that's what we do. Why do we do it? It's our culture. That's why we do it. And it's important to do it. Not for ourselves today or yesterday, but for the future generations. I'd also like to pay my respects to the other cultures here as well. And it's important we do that because our journey is together. It's united. And we all walk united in this Western world today. But it's important to recognise those footprints that came before us as well. So on behalf of my mum, who's a Ngunnawal woman and a Ngunnawal elder in this country, Yan Yedinburu, Nanadara, Yaramulan Naga. Hello and good morning. 
the dreaming is in your heart. Gala. Kalo Yalamandi. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Richie. Um, I feel very blessed to have been able to experience what we've had so far today, and I'm glad you've all been here to do that too. I think we're going to have a marvellous day. Um, can I say Yenbura as well? Um, and uh, I'd like to acknowledge, of course, Richie, the Ngunnawal mob, the Gambri mob, um, but everyone who's gathered here with us today. And I wanted to say a particular thanks to the folk that have just given us the most beautiful morning and acknowledge that here at the Greens we still have some work to do to decolonise and we commit to continuing on that path um, and to work for truth-telling and, of course, for, for sovereignty, for healing and for treaties, ultimately. So um, thanks, everyone. Can I also acknowledge we've got some um, wonderful colleagues in the room today. We've got Senator Janet Rice, who's with us, who's just fabulous. You all know and love Janet. And we've got the... Let's give Janet a round of applause. Why not? And we've got um, the just amazing Rachel Seawitt, who never stops working. She was sitting there before. She's probably getting herself a well-deserved cup of tea, but um, Rachel's with us here today, too. Um, I thought Tim Hollow did an amazing speech this morning and my heart is broken that he is not already the member for Canberra. So we are all going to fix that next time, aren't we, folks? Yeah? <laughs> yeah, just some wonderful insights there, Tim, and much needed. So we've just had a week in Parliament and um, the contrast between today and what's happened in the week couldn't be more stark. But you take hope where you can find it. Um, and so I want to acknowledge that much of my state is still gripped by fire. Um, and we've had some amazing people working on the front lines to try to fight those fires. Um, and I draw hope from the fact that it's not just been the Greens this week saying that these fires are climate-driven. It's actually been um, communities themselves. It's been the local mayors and the local governments. It's been the fire chiefs. Um, and of course, it's been traditional owners. So it feels like there is a, a change in awareness and consciousness, and I, I welcome that. It's long, it's long overdue. Um, but for the present minute, we're going to talk about deepening democracy and we've got some fabulous speakers um, that will share their insights with you for about 10 minutes each, and then we'll make sure we've got lots of time for questions at the end. So hold those until we've heard from um, Professor Niemeyer, Dr Amanda Carhill, Dr Tim Dunlop, and Nicola Paris. Um, so I might introduce uh, Professor Niemeyer, but can I just add one final comment? We hear a lot about quiet Australians. I think they left the comma out. I think it's quiet. Australians. And we've seen that so much, as Tim alluded to, with the, um, the laws to crack down on people's rights to protest, which are also, in my home state of Queensland, those laws are being changed by a government of a different colour. Um, we're seeing the media silenced. We're seeing um, environment groups silenced. We're seeing so much silencing of our collective voices that it is the perfect time to be examining how we change our democracy to re-establish that people and community is and should be at the heart of our democracy and at the heart of our decision-making. So I'm looking forward to today's session. So I'll introduce Associate Professor Simon Niemeyer. He's an Associate Professor and co-founder of the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance. His research covers the broad fields of deliberative democracy and environmental governance. Um, welcome. He's contributed to major theoretical insights in deliberative democracy with practical information practical implications informing the design of deliberative mini-publics, as well as improving the broader democratic process. His work on climate change governance demonstrates the challenges faced for government, not only in avoiding global change, but achieving adaptive governance. 
The same research also demonstrated the potential for increasingly deliberative forms of governance. He completed his PhD at the ANU and has since then been the recipient of a number of Australian Research Council awards, including the ARC Postdoc and Future Fellowships. Congratulations, not everyone can get those these days under this government. Um, he's led major international research projects both here and overseas, most recently in Sweden. His more recent research investigates method for, methods for assessing the deliberativeness of democratic systems and mechanisms for diffusion of the impacts of many publics across different scales. Phew. Let's hear about that for the next 10 minutes. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Professor Simon Niemeyer. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Waters, uh, and uh, thank you, everyone. And, and uh, I'd like to start off by uh, well, thanking uh, Tim Hollow for uh, for uh, inviting me here. I feel uh, very um, honoured and, and, and humbled. But I'd also like to uh, recognise, I think it's important to recognise that we're on uh, Ngunnawal land. But uh, it also occurs to me after hearing the last session, it's really important uh, to acknowledge, for me personally, that uh, what I'm about to, to speak about is also... Um, uh, I'm not only trading on Ngunnawal land, I'm, like, I'm also trading on some Ngunnawal ideas or Aboriginal ideas in terms of ideas of governance and so on. And uh, I, I've only got 10 minutes to, to talk and I'm, I'm, I apologise, I'm going to go through all this fairly quickly. Um, but in a sense, I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't already know uh, intuitively about what's possible and the diagnosis of the situation. But what I hope is that what I have to talk about is something that could be seen as a resource uh, and give us some ideas of potential ways forward in dealing with the challenges that we face in the democratic space um, and, and, and then hopefully sort of some, some possible uh, solutions might follow. So, I, 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 so 10 minutes, uh, 10 minutes uh, to, to, to talk about deliberative democracy. I wanted to actually tell a personal story about how I came into the space, which actually, I, I see we're going to do this in one minute. I, I, my, my, own journey into this space was actually quite a, a long one um, through, uh, through sort of developing a passion for environmental issues. Decided I wanted to be an ecologist and very quickly realised that uh, the social sciences was, was where it was at. But one of the uh, most important experiences I had uh, along that journey was uh, I grew up in North Queensland. Uh, I actually went to finish my high school in Mossman uh, in, in far, far North Queensland. And I used to go hiking on Hinchinbrook Island every year, and I had to get to the island by yeah, hitchhiking uh, one time. And I caught—I uh, managed to talk a truck driver into uh, giving me a lift at two o'clock in the morning. It took me a while to work out that I'd inadvertently paid for his speed to actually keep him awake while we were driving, but that's another story. Uh, but the thing was that we, we were going through the dead of night in, a, in an illegal truck uh, through someone that was probably a little bit jacked, uh, and somehow we managed to actually strike up a conversation and. We were from, yeah, we both grew up in North Queensland, but in a sense we were from very different worlds, very different viewpoints, but we were in this journey together. Uh, and we were approaching Cardwell, uh, and at the time there was a lot of controversy uh, in relation to actually um, sort of destroying mangrove uh, wetlands for, for a harbour. And as soon as, as soon as we got there, he started to uh, talk about bloody greenies and uh, yeah, the, usual, the usual thing. Uh, and I could have actually, the approach I could have taken was, well, I mean, that's what I identify with, uh, and, and obviously we don't see eye to eye on this issue. But I took a different approach, and, and I said, well, okay, uh, fair enough. Do you, do you like fishing? And he says, oh, yeah, man, I love my fishing. I'm you know, really, really passionate about this. And I says, well, you do realise that, uh, that, that mangroves are pretty important uh, rookeries, and uh, if you don't have mangroves, you don't have fishing. It's like, oh, Really? This was like this was almost a complete surprise to him, and it was amazing how that transformed the conversation that we had. 
Uh, and that was possible because we were in this together, uh, in, you know, in, in that. And I think it's, for me, that's a metaphor about the possibilities and the sort of politics that we can create in terms of finding solutions to these sorts of challenges. We have a politics that emphasizes difference and division versus one that we're actually in this together. And, and, and hopefully what I can do is give you a sense of what sort of mechanisms we might be able to harness to actually change that. So that brings me to deliberate democracy in one slide now. In a sense, it's, it's, it's nothing new, but what I, what I want to do is emphasize that it is more than these things that we, we call mini public citizens' juries, citizens' assemblies, uh, and so on. I'm sure many of you have heard about these sorts of processes. Tim did a fantastic job about, uh, in terms of outlining the sorts of issues in the space that, that, that we try and research in. Um, but deliberate democracy is co concerned with how we operate in, in, a, in, a, in a wider political sense as well. How can we transform the way that we do politics? We just happen to ha have stumbled across a really, really useful mechanism to actually simulate what is possible. Uh, and the challenge for us as researchers is to find ways to harness those. But overall, if we think about deliberate democracy, and this is, uh, and excuse me if I get into uh, academic speak here, uh, it's, it's characterized by three things that, that I think you know, all of us would actually agree with are important features of a democratic system. Uh, one is, is we would call deliberativeness. And very, very simply, it, it's a very vague term in a way, but it's, it's a way of capturing an ideal sense of how we reason and how we reason together, that we actually understand what it is, who we are, what it is that we want, and we find mechanisms then, by all of us being included in a, in a political system, in terms of developing those views and then articulating them, and that those positions that we arrive at actually have some relationship to the decisions that are made in an ideal, in an ideal sense. Now, these are all very high-minded ideals, of, of course, and, and, and when I actually explain to people uh, you know, about uh, deliberative democracy and, and, and what that represents, and they actually you know, they just you know, watch the news and then have a look at what's going on and they see you know, where we're actually tracking, and then they ask me how much I get paid to do this um, because obviously I'm not doing a very good job uh, given, given where we are. But, uh, but, but the point here is, is that most people intuitively get this as, a, as, as an ideal, as a way forward. The, the, the difference is actually, or the challenge is how we actually track towards that sort of future. So I want to focus on deliberative ideals uh, in terms of what they look like. And probably many of you recognize that this, this is very closely aligned with what uh, Janara, um, Dr. Goran Goring, actually uh, presented bef before. And, and these are the kind of ideals that we, in, we intuitively subscribe to, we hold, and, and the, the, the tragedy of politics as we experience is the disconnect between what we would understand as being a good process and a good way of actually engaging with each other versus what we've actually got. And Tim alluded to all the sorts of you know, macro-political uh, issues with you know, politics and power and commercial interests and so on, and these are actually big parts of this story. But the story I want to tell is that the the resources are there at the level of, of citizens and communities to actually be harnessed if we can actually find ways to do that. I, I, won't, I won't actually list the, uh, the, the desired effects of, of deliberation, but I do want to actually contrast you know, deliberativeness um, to the sorts of processes we see in reasoning in, in the public space, the sorts of you know, manipulation that harness you know, tendencies that we do have as individuals that don't necessarily define us. As, as political agents. You know, things like motivated reasoning, 
um, you know, biases and, and, and prejudice and, and so on. This doesn't necessarily define who we are and how we reason together. So this, this actually brings me to the sort of the effects that we observe when we engage in deliberative processes. And the research that I do started off at the small scale, looking at how people change when they actually participate in these sorts of processes. And these are people from all sorts of walks of life that you would think would have nothing to say to each other. And, and it's, it's something that keeps me going, that I, that I have the chance to actually observe these sorts of processes and actually witness firsthand the sorts of possibilities in terms of finding a way forward. So I wanted to, to, to define these in two ways, the sorts of processes, the sorts of transformations we see. And one is the way we reason together. And now I don't mean this in a very strictly scientific sense. And I think there's too much emphasis in saying there is a right answer in terms of if you actually believe in climate change, it's obvious we have to do something. That actually doesn't follow automatically because the decision to do something is something that actually connects with our values in terms of what we want and what should happen. And I think that's a real problem with the public discourse that we have around these sorts of issues. We actually, we actually exclude you know, the, the views of individuals by implying automatically that, 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 that something should follow from knowledge. No, it's actually values as well. But the fortunate thing is when you actually ask people and you really ask and you really listen, you actually discover that we actually share a lot in terms of values. There's very few people that if you actually frame it in terms of, do you want to actually see a scorched earth, a future where we have uh, you know, increasing levels of bushfires, where people are displaced from homes, it, it, apart from the, the old psychopath or sociopath, you're not gonna find people who actually can endorse that sorts of view. So how do we actually harness those, that shared view and actually, uh, and, and actually connect that to politics? The second, the second effect that uh, we observe is a transformation of the understanding of who we are and, and the way we actually understand the issues. And the, these, these sorts of dynamics actually happen together, but we, I want to actually show you examples of, 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 of how they look empirically through the research we do and how they might inform what we can do to harness those in terms of transforming the way we do politics. Now, I'm really sorry about this. <laughs> this, is, this, this is the boffin in me, uh, and, and this is a bit technical, but there is a bit of passion in here as well. Uh, so this is, this is uh, what I want to do is actually just visualize the, the, the difference between how we reason together under politics as usual and what's possible when we actually can create a, a deliberative context, if you like. Uh, so this graph, what it does is actually shows effectively, and I'm trying to do this in non-jargonistic terms, if we go across the bottom, we go from left to right in terms of how much we agree uh, in terms of a shared sense of who we are, whether we actually see you know, what's important in the world in terms of what we believe and what we value uh, and, and so on as, 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 as members of a community. And on the, on the up and down, on the, uh, the y-axis, if you like, it's, a, it's, a shared, it's an extent to which we share an understanding of what should be done. What should we do going forward? And I don't want to say, I don't want to actually suggest that we, we should all have an exact shared understanding. What is ideal here is that we actually have a shared sense of what is going on, that when we actually make a decision together about an issue, it's not that you are thinking about this, this particular aspect of the issue, the you know, economic consequences and so on, and I'm thinking about the environmental ones, is that we both take those dimensions seriously and incorporate that into our decision making. Whereas the way we actually engage in discourse around these issues tends to divide the way we focus on these sorts of issues. So this, this effectively represents that, that. So we have all these points, these dots, which represent pairs of individuals. 
Uh, and you can see it's towards the agreement end of the spectrum, but you can see in terms of what we should do, there's actually very, very little agreement, and that's because of these sorts of dynamics. And we're all aware of these in terms of you know, the, the political discourse. We, we, we tend to frame, well, there's a tendency by certain political actors to frame these issues in terms of identity. You know, it, 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 so when we consider about sort of water allocation, uh, if you frame it in terms of you want to give it to the greenies versus do you actually want to give it to the rest of us to actually ensure an you know, ecological sustainable future, they're very different ways of actually looking at these sorts of issues. But they have very specific impacts on the way you know, we, the, 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 the we as citizens actually decide on what should be done. So this is, this is a very non-deliberative situation. But what happens, and this is the part that excites me, so forgive the geek of me that I get excited uh, about this sort of thing. This is what happens when we go through a deliberative process. We actually, it, and this happens every time we actually run one of these processes, well, actually except for one time. So I'll show you the one time it didn't happen. This actually shows the improvement in that sort of relationship. Now the point, the, 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 there's two things I want to actually you know, draw attention to uh, here. The case studies, these are international case studies, uh, some are from Australia. There are all sorts of issues, many of them are environmental issues. The ones on the right hand, or the ones on the left hand, side of more or less standard deliberative approaches where you bring people together, uh, you tell them what a deliberative process looks like and you set them off with a bit of information and they have a discussion. And often you get an improvement in the process, except for one case study, well, there's a control group down the end, there was no deliberation. There's one case study that it declines in Italy. Now let's not actually blame the Italians for this because <laughs> what actually happened uh, here, and this is very instructive, is that our facilitator went a bit rogue on us and decided to implement a vote <laughs> very early on in the process, which had the instant effect, and I don't understand to tell you, but I could see what was going on, uh, had the instant effect of shutting down minds. It's a really vivid example of how the way we frame our politics can actually inf influence the way we think together about issues. Uh, and, and, and actually, we, you know, we, we, we would like to do some research to find out what those sorts of effects are and how we can mitigate against that by developing a, you know, what we might call deliberative capacity. It's not to say that voting is always bad, but if you have a politics that's always about voting, it's potentially disastrous. But the happy story here is that on the right-hand side, these are examples of processes where we don't just throw people into a room and let them rip, as it were. They, we had a really good facilitator in Australia that uh, started, uh, started this off and gave me this idea. We gave participants the opportunity to talk together about what they thought should be the rules, uh, how they should actually engage with the issues. And when, and, and then so often we sort of, we would have a butcher's paper or a whiteboard, we'd sort of list all the, 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 the ideals and so on. And every time we did this, it was almost like reinventing deliberative theory, if you like. Everyone agreed we should respect each other, we should listen, we should take each other seriously. And it changed the context. There was buy-in uh, in terms of how we should behave together as, as, as citizens, you know, collectively trying to work out what to do. So that's a positive story. Now, I want to actually bring the tone down a little bit quickly here, and I'm going to be very quick. <laughs> I'm already over time. We did some research 10 years ago in, in the ACT uh, on climate change. We developed a series of climate change scenarios uh, and we interviewed people about their response and how they would feel in, in, in 10 years time or 50 years time if this was this world. So we actually showed them two examples here. One was the changes to temperature. So that's baseline, historic 2050 and 20, 2100. And then, and, and this is, this is uh, 
great growing. There's, there's always ten. This affects people overseas more than Australia. But uh, just two examples. And we, we show the whole litany of, 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 of these slides uh, and watch people get very depressed and upset about this. And then we actually tracked across a map in terms of understanding who we are. Uh, and I'll, I don't have time to get into the details here. But what I do want to say is that we had a situation where things look bad uh, in terms of how we respond uh, in terms of the political implications and how we actually adapt to the situation. We had people that got distressed, depressed, wanted to disengage, when is interested in cooperating, wanted to just watch, watch Netflix, close the curtains, and, and, and that was it. And then this, this was 10 years ago, and you can see this starting to happen potentially. Uh, this, this, and and it's, it's my, personally my most underrated piece of research, and, and I'm very keen to, to get back to it. But we didn't just do this. We also ran a deliberative process, a three-day process. Uh, and what we actually found is, and these are the skeptics that disappeared. We had some deep skeptics that hung around for two days, and that's another whole story. Uh, there was a, a gun license involved, but that, anyway. Um, but what actually happened during that process is we, we got some transformation, but it changed the whole map. It changed the whole way that the group thought about the issues. And it wasn't actually so much about expecting the government to fix it. Uh, it, you know, it was someone else's fault. They actually took responsibility for the issue. They saw this as a community, uh, a, shared, a shared issue, and actually transformed the whole nature of, of the way this was seen. And that's, that's just my nice you know, sort of animated way of actually demonstrating that some very, uh, very interesting and, and uh, um, positive things happened during the process. Very, very quickly, 30 seconds just to, 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 um, to tie this up. So that we get some very, very interesting effects here when we run these sorts of processes. The question is, how do we replicate this in politics more widely? Now, there's all sorts of things that can be done, and, and, and many of you will be familiar with them, but what I want to do is focus on how we can harness these sorts of processes. Okay. It is possible to, rather than use these, these processes of decision-making, to actually use the language, that, language that's produced to try and change the language in terms of the way we represent issues. To reg I use the term regulate, which might sound a little bit too, a little bit too over the top. Um, but there's really good evidence that other citizens are prepared to listen to and trust the judgments and, and the findings of their fellow citizens in these sorts of processes. And this is in a world where we have incredible, incredibly quickly declining levels of trust. And, and if there's no trust, then there's, you know, there's no sense of, of, of we uh, in, in these sorts of scenarios. And that, that involves that we actually need to find mechanisms to transmit these sorts of processes. And not only just the outcomes they produce, but the reasoning and, and, and the sense of the community, and the sense that this is more than us actually you know, individually going for what we should think happen. Finding mechanisms to actually transmit that you know, to the rest of society. And civil society, and Tim's already mentioned this, has a potentially important uh, role to play in this sorts of space. The other dimension is finding political champions. No pressure uh, here at all, but uh, you know, there's a really, really good evidence that this is an incredibly important component of their success. And many of you may have heard about what's happened in Ireland, and I've you know, been working with colleagues in Ireland, um, sort of analysing what's happened in the Irish, uh, the Irish case. But the, the big part of the story here is they, they successfully engaged with politicians who you wouldn't normally think would be part of these processes and absolutely transformed the way not only that they thought about what was possible with citizens, um, but all, you know, the issues themselves, and that was transmitted via their, uh, you know, their, their usual networks and mechanisms and so on to actually transforming the whole nature of the issue. 
building deliberative capacity. Um, that's, a, that's a longer uh, story, but there are ways that we can actually find non-intrusive mechanisms to actually improve the way we actually reason around these issues together. And then you know, think about knowledge as a trust system, which actually plugs into my first point in terms of you know, harnessing trust through the mechanism of the citizen, having faith in other citizens to actually work through these, these issues. But this isn't to say that we need to trans, we need to displace politics. There's still a very important role, but we actually need to bring those systems together uh, in, in very meaningful ways. Uh, and I think that's enough for me. Oh no, rebuild, rebuild public discourse. Uh, I, I actually won't talk about uh, that anymore. I'll, I'll sign off there. Thank you. That was fabulous. Stay up here if you like, Simon. Um, wow. Uh, it's very heartening to know that there are several ways in which we could improve our democracy. And sadly, if anyone watches Question Time, you can see how desperately that's needed. It's, I think Tim described it best. He said it was colonial, uh, patriarchal, capitalist and extractionist. And I couldn't agree more. Um, and as one of my other good friends said, it's time for us to take our democracy back. So... Thank you very much, Simon, and I'm going to seek a briefing with you to get some more detail, particularly on that climate paper, which I'm sorry we don't have more time to go into um, just at the minute. We've now got uh, an amazing speaker, um, Dr Amanda Kyle, who's done a lot of work in my home state of Queensland as well as across the country. She's the CEO of The Next Economy. She spent over two decades working with communities right across Australia, Asia and the Pacific on community and economic development projects. In the last five years, she's been working, working with communities across Australia to strengthen regional economies by embracing the transition from fossil fuels to zero carbon economies. Um, and that, that just transition work is something that we're particularly interested in um, in our party and, and I think more widely in the community. She's an associate of the University of Queensland and the Sydney Policy Lab. Can you please welcome um, Dr Amanda Kyle? Yarn, everyone. I'd also like to acknowledge the continuing sovereignty of the Ngunnawal people on, land that we, on whose land we're meeting today and acknowledge that this land has never been ceded. On a personal note, I'd also like to acknowledge Janara and James, who were the traditional owners of the country that I grew up on until I was 12 years old. Um, it was a country that shaped me spiritually, um, and it's with a great deal of sadness and a dose of shame as well that I was able to grow up in that country where so many of the traditional owners did not and could not um, because they were taken off country. So I want to acknowledge the elders, um, past, present and emerging, and, and the First Nations people here in the room because it's so valuable and such a gift um, to have your time and wisdom in spaces like this that you are showing up um, and in dialogue with us, so thank you. I, um, as Senator Waters was saying, I run an organisation called The Next Economy based in Brisbane. And for the last five years, it's been my privilege to work with communities across Australia to try and work out how we transition and what I want to talk about fits very nicely with what Simon was just saying. I'm going to talk about some of the principles behind um, how I have those conversations. Um, as Tim asked me to sort of get into the nitty-gritty of what actually happens um, in talking to coal communities in a way that we can shift that conversation to be something more productive at a time where um, there's increasing polarisation and division around this issue. But before I get into the nuts and bolts, I just want to give you some context of what I've been noticing, um, especially more recently. 
So I've worked from Townsville in North Queensland down through central Queensland into the Hunter Latrobe Valley and even starting to work with some people around Collie in Western Australia. And I've been meeting amazing local people and they are taking action because they care about a future for their children and their grandchildren. They also want to make a good living as well. So there's this kind of tension in the work. So the people I've been meeting on the whole are not anti-renewable, but they're also not anti-coal. Um, on the whole, though, people are pretty angry and um, scared at a time where they have very little faith in government or experts because regions have been doing it tough for quite a long time and that polarisation is growing and I've found since the federal election the work has become even harder. So what do we do about that? Should we, as at least one environmental activist suggested to me, abandon regional Australia and write them off? I think that would just be a huge mistake. There is so much space to actually engage with people. And I want to give you three reasons why I think that's important. First, it's just plain wrong from a moral standpoint to write anyone off. Um, but particularly because at this time of great disruption, this is a question of justice. We have an opportunity now with the disruption to not only ensure that we don't leave people behind, but we find ways to address the issues of people who have been marginalised and sidelined from the current economic system. So they actually come out of the transition better off. But to do this means we have to deal with some really tricky questions that a lot of us have been avoiding in the environmental movement in particular. And that's questions about how our economy works. Because the polarisation and fear that we're seeing is not simply about coal and energy. It's a product of a growing rift in our country that has been exacerbated by the last 25 years of neoliberal policies that have seen services ripped from communities, the increasing extraction of wealth from the land and people, growing inequality, increasingly insecure work conditions, the dismantling of our welfare system, and while the cost of living keeps on increasing. This isn't about coal, it's about the economy, democracy and justice. But the beauty of the current challenge is that this is a moment where we could choose to do things differently. So for example, renewable energy. We can roll out large-scale renewable energy systems across the country um, and we can do it in the same old extractive way. And that's what is happening at the moment. Or we could take public control over our utilities across the country and see it as a public service or public good. Or we could build community-owned renewable systems and de democratise control of the energy system. These are the choices that we have but are being invisible in the kind of noise and debate that we're seeing. So that's my first reason for not turning away. The second and more pragmatic reason is I think it would be a strategic error because there's so many people across Australia who are building initiatives that are reducing and absorbing emissions and creating new jobs and industries. From regenerative and carbon farming initiatives to community-owned renewable energy systems to innovative waste projects and so more. We've got a lot to work with and build on. Third, I think we ignore people's fear at our own peril. The really personal reason why I stopped doing the international development work I was doing and started to focus back on regional Australia was because of a fascist group called Reclaim Australia, anti-immigration group. After the second trip I did to Mackay um, at the invitation of locals to talk about transition, I couldn't get over the level of fear that people had in their meetings with me. Yes, the coal price had been down for years and so people were doing it tough. This is in 2014. But what really disturbed me was the fear people had to just talk about the issue 
to anyone outside of their immediate family. I couldn't shake. Like, for the next week, I just kept having this thought, like, this is what led to the Nazi party in the 20s after the First World War, is economic hardship and fear that got preyed on by um, right wing. And then I kept thinking, no, you're being overly dramatic. <laughs> um, it's not, you know, don't be ridiculous. But 10 days later, I turned on the news and Reclaim Australia was having their biggest, their first organised national rallies across Australia and one of the biggest was in Mackay and it was led by the local MP. And in that moment, I just said, not on my watch. And that's when I started doing the transition work. And we're, going to see, we're seeing more of this. Like that was before One Nation started to come back. So we need to find more ways to connect, understand each other, and make sure we bring everyone along in this period of change using these principles. We know what we need to do to manage the transition well, and we have everything we need to do it, and it's already happening. And it's creating jobs and opportunities for regional Australia. This is a story that we need to tell to repair some of the cracks that have been widening in our social fabric um, over questions about what we do about the energy transition. So I'll just finish with a few thoughts on what brings people together for meaningful action on the ground, and everyone else has already covered them this morning, but I'll go over them again in slightly different language. First, so seven elements. First, I think being genuinely curious as a step to being open. I am an academic by training, I'm an anthropologist, and I just I find people fascinating, especially when they have such a different view to me. Um, so this means actually being open, it's asking questions and listening, like genuinely listening to people, and not just their words, about where they're at. And it's about acknowledging the fear and doing the emotional work that we all need to do to accept the inevitability of the changes that we're facing. People know that things are changing, they just don't know what to do about it. Second, focus on practical solutions and what it looks like. So I, I'm lucky, I have lots of stories that I can tell people about other communities and what they're doing. And it's the stories and something that's concrete that actually shifts people from kind of being sceptical of the outsider to going, oh, that's a great idea, where do we start? Number three, help people to see and explore what's already in their place using a strengths-based approach. It's been staggering how much is going on, but people in their own community can't see it. And the classic example was Townsville, where a group of decision makers actually realised there were 5,000 construction jobs um, on 13 renewable energy projects within 400 kilometres of Townsville. And they didn't have enough construction workers to fill those jobs. I timed it. Within 15 minutes, somebody's saying, oh, but we need a Dani for the jobs. Construction jobs that they didn't have people for. Um, I think the strengths-based approach works best, though, when we're not telling people. We actually facilitate spaces for people to analyse their own situation and work it out and work out what they want to do. Fifth element is peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, so some of the... You use a different term, but some of the most successful conversations is not when someone like me from the city with doctor in front of a name. Um, it's actually getting people like the amazing Julie Lyford, who's in the room up the back. So people from other regions that are already going through transition for them to talk about what's going on in their own communities. People listen in a very different way. Number six, adopt, adopting an inclusive approach and really accepting that everyone has a different part to play. I talk a lot about community in general, but more specifically, I do work with everyone across the board and, and across the political spectrum around this. And a lot of that's quiet work, so it's not just having one big public forum and inviting everyone, it's actually creating safe spaces for different people to participate. So closed door meetings with um, government and industry, for example, that are confidential, but actually helps them think this through. 
there's a lot of people across every sector that really do want to do the right thing. They just, again, don't necessarily know where to start or don't feel safe to start taking that first step. And finally, um, we need to be bold and radical in the conversations we're having. We need to be talking about the things that we're talking about today out in the community because people are asking for it. People are talking about democracy being broken or the system being broken or what's the role of government and why there's so many empty shops and it didn't used to be like this. These are all radical questions. They're openings to have a different conversation and we need to be ready to have them, but in a way that listens and is a two-way dialogue. Now's the time to respond and help everyone build something new. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Um, and your work has been really groundbreaking and I think just your manner and the way you approach these, you've been a real help to my state um, and to those communities. Well done and keep it up. Um, that was marvellous. Oh, today is so much better than the rest of the week. Thanks, thanks everybody. Um, we've now got the great pleasure of hearing from Dr Tim Dunlop, who, um, of course, reputation precedes him. He's an author and a speaker who began work, uh, working life as the founder of one of the first video stores in Melbourne, back when VHS was cutting edge. Um, he received a PhD in communications and he's taught at the University of Canberra, at Swinburne and the University of Melbourne. He's lived um, all around the world. He became interested in online technologies as agents of social change, definitely before his time. He was an early political blogger and wrote a seminal text, The New Front Page, on the changes wrought, by, uh, uh, wrought in journalism by digitisation. He's subsequently written two other books, Why the Future is Workless and the Future of Everything, dealing, as the name might suggest, with the future of work and other aspects of the tech revolution. He's committed to the idea of bottom-up democratic reform and his writing reflects that commitment. His most recent book is an edited volume, um, Implementing Basic Income in Australia, which is another fascinating debate that we're having as a party and a community. Um, so can you please join me in welcoming Dr. Tim Dunlop. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you very much for having me here. Um, I want to acknowledge particularly the um, session that we had this morning, which I thought was really incredible. Um, we talk about present and emerging leaders. Uh, in the community, and I, I just thought it was inspiring and moving um, discussion that we had this morning. It was terrific to see. And there's certain crossover between what I'm saying. There's certain there's a fair bit of crossover between what I'm saying and what Simon talked about um, to kick us off this afternoon. Um, mine's sort of a bit more the kumbaya version, I think, um, of the notions of deliberative democracy. Um, so, I've been specifically asked to talk about citizens' juries or citizens' assemblies, um, which is a form of de democratic participation that I um, strongly support. But in particular, I've been asked to talk about this notion of sortition, which is a method for choosing how people participate um, in juries or assemblies. And listening to the session this morning, I realised it's not just a methodology, it's really a, an underlying philosophy. So I'll say something about that as well. Um, I wanted to start by putting it in the context of collective versus individual actions. Citizens' juries, citizens' assemblies aren't just about giving people a voice in the political process. They're just as much about collective action and the pleasure of coming together and solving the problems that confront us. Um, one of the triumphs of neoliberalism, I think, has been to isolate us and to convince us that all um, aspiration is personal and individual, 
whereas in fact there's great satisfaction to be found in the simple act of coming together and taking responsibility for our own future. I hear people whinge all the time, particularly kind of even progressive activists whinging about um, street protests that don't achieve anything concrete. But I think they overlook just the um, aspect of collective action. Collective is the point. Um, Oscar Wilde once said that the trouble with socialism was that it required too many meetings. Um, <laughs> and I think we can all relate to that at a, on some level. His comment was part of an argument that said outsourcing our democratic participation via representative democracy such as we have frees up our time to do other things. And, you know, maybe to some limited extent that is true, but it also deprives us of the joy of participation. It's led to the problems that we have now where power is concentrated in a few hands amongst an elite who pursue their own interests and all that free time that we all allegedly have um, is probably being spent in holding down precarious and poorly paying jobs in an increasingly insecure and financialised economy. Um, so let's just look at that notion of representation as it currently operates um, so that we can better understand the benefits of assemblies and sortition. So whatever axis you look at it on, gender, ethnicity, occupation, religion, our parliaments don't look like us. They don't sound like us. At the most basic level, they don't properly represent us, which is a pretty major flaw in a system of representative democracy. It's hardly surprising, therefore, that people disengage from what parliaments do, from what politicians say, from the whole messy business of governance. And in many ways, I want to say that this sorry state of affairs is a byproduct of the very thing that we think of as the bedrock of democracy, namely voting. So I think we need to re-educate ourselves um, about the reality of voting. Voting isn't the most important thing in our democracy, and I'll tell you why. Voting entrenches elite rule. That's because when we vote, we are in effect handing power to a small group of people, the two major political parties in Australia, and the people who influence pay them. Over the last few elections, Australians have tried to break this two-party control and, you know, and to some extent have been successful. At the 2019 election, just under a quarter of the electorate voted outside the major parties in the lower house. Nonetheless, ALP and Coalition hold 95% of the seats. What I want to say today is that the cure for what ails our democracy is not a retreat into populism or a sort of flaccid centrism, um, and it's certainly not a retreat into authoritarianism. The cure for what ails our democracy is purely and simply more democracy. And more democracy means participation by more people. And the part of the way that we achieve that is by remembering the origins of democracy itself, what it was and what it wasn't. In ancient Greece, amongst those who invented democracy, most office holders were, de were decided not by voting, but by drawing lots. It was random. Um, it sounds weird, but for the ancient Greeks, voting was seen as anti-democratic. Instead, they used a lottery system, and it meant that everyone at some time in their life got to be part of the government. 
democracy is self-rule, and the essence of that is that everyone gets to govern, not just be governed. Voting doesn't achieve this, but random selection does, sometimes called sortition, which is, simply means to sort. Aristotle said voting leads to oligarchy. Only random selection leads to democracy. Now, when you look at that, I think we can take, you know, how, how do we apply this? I think there's kind of a maximalist and a minimalist argument. A maximalist approach would see us replace the current voting system in one or both houses of parliament with a system of random selection. So that, for instance, senators um, would be chosen from the population at large in the way that we now choose members of a jury. A minimalist approach would see us establish adjunct houses of parliament, people's houses, if you like. Actually, when I wrote my book about, with a chapter about this stuff, I wanted to call, I didn't want to use the term people's houses, I wanted to use the expression house of sensibleness. Um, but my publisher wouldn't go along with that, unfortunately. But anyway, so these adjunct houses, people's houses, where we all get to serve at some stage in our lives, chosen by lot. The reason such bodies can be powerful, and Simon's talked a little bit about this, obviously, is because of something else we tend to forget, and it was articulated by the American commentator and writer Christopher Lash. He said, democracy requires public debate, not information. Of course, it needs information too, but the kind of information it needs can be generated only by vigorous popular debate. Information, which is usually seen as the precondition of debate, is better understood as its byproduct. When we get into arguments that focus and fully engage our attention, we become avid seekers of relevant information. So a people's house based on sortition allows this sort of public de deliberation and information seeking. It brings in experts and advocates on certain issues and lets them make their case to the citizens present, and it allows those citizens to question experts and advocates, um, and to also argue amongst themselves about what they have heard before deciding on an outcome. It's deliberation for an outcome, not negotiation for a vote. The obvious comparison is with the jury system, a representative sample of citizens um, hear from experts and witnesses from all sides, and make up their mind and render a verdict. If we can do it with the application of laws in a court case, we can certainly do it with the writing of laws in the first place. Um, I don't know if you saw recently the clip of um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, questioning Mark Zuckerberg uh, in the United States. It was great. <laughs> and, and look, part of the joy of that was that, what she, that she was doing it in an environment where the rules of engagement require accountability, accountability uh, in a much more compelling way than anything that happens in question time or certainly in most media interviews. They weren't involved in a citizens' assembly as such, it was a congressional committee hearing, but the assembly can utilise similar rules of engagement with the added bonus of the direct participation of citizens themselves. Um, various nations, including ours, do this sort of thing in the form of citizens' assemblies and citizens' juries. Um, recent successful ones 
have included one that was held in Adelaide on whether or not South Australia should accept the world's nuclear waste for storage. The Irish Assembly that Simon mentioned was a fantastic example um, where they overturned the constitutional, they helped overturn the constitutional ban uh, on abortion in Ireland. I think ultimately, these are kind of random things that happen on occasion when people can organise them. I think we need to entrench such assemblies as an ongoing part of our governance process. Um, and we've seen this happen already in Belgium. Um, we can talk about that later. So, look, I want to say voting is important, um, but it isn't the most important thing about democracy. Participation is much more important, and we should spend as much effort encouraging participation as we do encouraging people to vote. Um, a people's house where we all get to have a say is the embodiment of the idea of self-rule, the very thing democracy is meant to be. The bottom line is this, the neoliberalism of the last 40 years, whatever its intentions, has created a world we do not want. And despite our ideological divides over how to attain them, our desires are, for the most part, straightforward and widely shared and worth stating as simply as possible. We want meaningful work, restorative leisure, a loving circle of family and friends. We want others to have those things too and we want a planet that can sustain this kind of life. I think we need to recognise that many people are already committed to revolutionary values, even if they don't quite realise it or recognise the implications. And to meet those you know, almost banal human needs that I just listed, only the most extraordinary and utopian politics will do. And the nature of that extraordinary politics is that it is bottom up. As both Plato and Aristotle noted, the overwhelming majority of people who made up the Athenian demos were not wealthy. Rule of the people is therefore by definition the rule of the poor, since citizens of modest means are bound to vastly outnumber the rich. Rule of the poor, how radical is that? Citizens' assemblies based on general participation through sortition are the institutionalisation of that sort of utopian politics. Let's get together in citizens' assemblies and talk about it and change the world from the bottom up. Thank you. That was fabulous. Thanks so much, Tim. I think all our speakers have so far hit the nail on the head that people don't feel like democracy belongs to them anymore. They see it doesn't look like them. They feel like it doesn't listen to them. And they see that it's essentially controlled by big money and vested interests. Um, and, you know, you all know the stats about the uh, sheer size of corporate donations that both the big parties have received in the last six, seven years. It's $100 million. And all of those, uh, all of the access that those lobbyists get and that revolving door between lobbyists and industries and the parliament. Um, this is why we need to take our democracy back. And that's why I'm really proud that our party's evolved and we've really embraced um, not just community engagement, but community building, which I think um, we've all spoken about today. I think that's been a really positive step for how we campaign. It's certainly an extension of our core beliefs. And it gives me a lot of hope that we can re-democratise our democracy. Um, so with that, we've got one final speaker, Nicola Paris. Um, she established Counteract in 2012, and she's trained thousands of people in civil resistance and grassroots campaign skills. I know she's been a huge support to many activists on the front line, um, and she's, she's very well regarded and respected. She's got nearly 20 years of experience working across the pro 
progressive spectrum, from blockades to boardrooms, from federal parliament to tiny NGOs to frontline action in Antarctica. I didn't know that. She's helped defend the Kimberley from industrialisation. She's supported civil disobedience to protect the Belia wetlands near Perth, which I've been to. It's a beautiful spot. She's helped coordinate Break Free, involving 2,000 people blockading the coal port of Newcastle. She's also worked with unlikely suspects such as religious leaders, anti-gambling advocates and childcare educators to prepare and support them for non-violent direct action. And she's worked on a range of social justice, legal and human rights issues. She's a very busy woman. <laughs> she's also written many resources for activists, including legal handbooks, and she monitors and supports protest rights around the country. Please, let's welcome Nicola to the podium. Thank you. I would like to also acknowledge, uh, acknowledge country, uh, Ngunnawal people, and acknowledge that uh, when I'm talking about peaceful protest and uh, resistance, that uh, the history is not just, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 or a couple of um, hundred years. It goes back to colonisation. And uh, thank you very much to the, um, to the speakers this morning. I think everyone uh, found a lot out of that. So here are some things that are happening in our democracy right now. Police shooting to kill when they have unsafe but less fatal options that they've lobbied for. Um, they mainly just use tasers on mentally ill people and threaten teenagers with them. Regular assaults of activists. High-powered chemical agents being deployed against youth and the elderly trying to protect our climate. Companies literally being above the law or having laws written for and by them. One of the worst safety nets for people in the majority uh, world with, with people literally not being able to afford to live on New Start. Sorry, I should have said Global, um, uh, global North. Huge levels of incarceration for Aboriginal people, torturing people in island prisons, unequal wages for women and men, people suiciding because of a deliberate government program creating imaginary robo-debt, disabled people being abused and not having access to basic dignity and health, refusing medical care to people we have literally made sick in island prisons, fossil fuel companies receiving billions in um, uh, uh, subsidies and uh, care of communities outsourced to mercenaries like Serco. I've only got 10 minutes, so they're just the top line items of how well our democracy is currently functioning. Uh, to quote from one of the earlier very smart people in the room, wisdom can be seen in people's acts. Uh, and the country is literally on fire. Literally. We don't even have to say that metaphorically anymore. Um, one other thing democracy is responsible for, the Greens single-handedly destroying the global climate by not voting for a crap law 10 years ago, <laughs> which is why we're under in this mess. Uh, whilst also being too irresponsible to be a party of government, yet somehow being able to create uh, one rule to rule them all and to single-handedly outlaw all kinds of backburning. So, credit to you all. <laughs> Things that we've gotten because of act act acting outside the law, voting rights for women, um, women being able to drink beer, which, you know, used to be quite important to me. I don't drink beer anymore, but... Um, Thank you to Merle, who locked on to a bar uh, in Queensland, uh, something that's a little bit harder to do now because the Labor Party is doing its impression of Joe Bielke-Peterson uh, with the lock-on laws. Um, uh, shout out to the single person who's uh, in opposition in the Queensland Parliament. Um, 
what else we've got? National parks, the Franklin River, the Franklin River, a very long list of workers' rights, heritage buildings intact, one less uranium mine near Jabaluka, sacred birthing grounds and songlines remain intact at Warmadam, James Price Point, and the Beerlia wetlands in WA. Um, WA activists are pretty great, just saying. Uh, internationally, there's medicine and care for people who no longer die of HIV as much in, again, uh, places where there's privilege. The civil rights movement made historic gains and that led the way for the current Black Lives Matter movement to take up the mantle in the United States. And, of course, we have the phenomenal resistance that's happening now, uh, literally as we speak, in standing up for the people of um, Yundamu. Um, right now... People across the world are taking to the streets because they're sick of inequality and human rights being trashed. Here we're seeing mob and allies all over the country turning out in their thousands. The political pressure resulting in the first charge of murder before an inquest on a cop for killing an Aboriginal person. I was there at the rally um, last night, the night before, no, last night. Um, it, uh, coming from Perth, I'm a bit out of whack. Um, and I was there live while people announced that he had been um, uh, actually charged with murder and it was, it was quite an amazing thing to be there. Um, so we're seeing people rising up uh, here in new ways as well, the awesomely inspiring school strikers who, I, um, who I'm loving working with and I am uh, um, learning all kinds of um, new emojis and all kinds of stuff. But these are mostly singular acts of resistance, um, powerful and awesome civil disobedience. The difference between the people in Chile, Lebanon and us is that they are staying on the streets. That's civil resistance at scale and that is what we need. Uh, we don't live in a democracy, I don't think. As I've said before, we live in the idea of a democracy. But the reality on the ground is quite different. Dissent is critical for democracy. As others have said, democracy is not voting once every three years for one of two parties to form government that support the coal industry uh, and are okay with locking up refugees. It requires active involvement and I'm pretty sure people in this room are part of that. Um, in terms of what we are up against in, uh, for people at the grassroots who are uh, protesting is that we've got repressive legislative framework and structure that's lying dormant. Um, there's a whole heap of laws in the last 10 years that have been passed with uh, bilateral support. Uh, absolutely appalling lockstep... Um, oh, just, I don't even know how to say... You know, yeah, <laughs> goose-stepping, yes. Um, I think I was maybe trying to not say that, which is why I was careful. <laughs> Um, yeah, basically, Labor, not very impressed with you right now. Weirdly surprising. I'm sure no one in this room agrees with that at all. They're fine. It's great. Everything is fine. Um, biggest changes in our national security laws for 30 years went through last year. Uh, substantive problems that remained in that, um, in that legislation that I believe that you know, parliaments, uh, people in this room uh, wouldn't have even had time to look at. So... I think one of the things that was interesting is that there was a whole heap of shock that went around when images from the IMARC conference in Melbourne uh, were circulated, images of police brutality, of um, young people being capsicum sprayed. It, that's actually not that unusual, and I've been monitoring and looking after protesters for a long time, and I've seen some really significant 
violence against activists, um, white privileged activists, as well as obviously the greater brunt um, that is received by Aboriginal activists. Um, you know, we're not getting shot on the streets as activists, some other people are, which is, which is just phenomenally awful. And I think that the level of repression that we're facing is um, the, the threads of it are coming together now and it's something that we need help with at the grassroots. Um, Lydia made some points uh, about the ex excellent work, which sounds really exciting, which I would be thrilled to see the sovereign hubs and some of that um, coming out. Made some other points about, yeah, I guess the way... Um, that we are seeing leadership from mob with uh, the Jabwarung protests, the fact that Mira protected country up at Jabaluka, that ANFA, the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, like this is what some solutions um, in terms of greenies um, uh, working together uh, and supporting mob uh, can really look like. We need to push back and we need help and we need resources Protest is vital in democracy. Having a radical flank to any movement helps shift the Overton window, moves the debate. That's vital. And the right wing seem to get that a lot better than us um, on the left. Uh, instead, as we say, we're, you know, we're criticising each other for you know, street protests, um, uh, not turning things around immediately. Um, I would say if anyone who's working in a well-paid uh, six-figure job in an NGO wants to be critical about a handful of volunteers turning some people out in the streets and non-violent resistance, maybe they could share some resources with us and uh, we might be able to do a bit of a better job. Um, so what I would say to people in this room who I know are active in civil society, are active in this political party, are active elsewhere in their lives, is that we really need help at the grassroots for protest. I know some of you are also there doing that as well, but we really, really need help. Um, it's basically a case of use it or lose it. If we don't push open the political space, we're not going to have it there anymore. Um, so what I think we need, um, protection and support uh, from respected figures, um, from academia, from civil rights uh, groups, from human rights groups. We need, great, we need legitimisation. Um, we need movement infrastructure. We need um, people looking after the mental health, that uh, the climate grief that is coming up and is really prevalent in a lot of the young activists, let alone everyone else in this room, I'm sure. That kind of stuff is really important. Uh, we need to be telling stories because one of the things I've noticed is that we're not actually seeing uh, stories told from the grassroots because we don't have the time or the money to do it. Often you see these big wins and one of the big NGOs will put out, you know, a meme and a media release um, quicker than, you know, anyone on the, on the ground who's, who's able to actually do the work. One of the things that also I think is important is the how of how we protest. Um, protest to me and nonviolent resistance uh, should, it, should build in skill sharing and mentoring. The aim should be to make ourselves redundant. The aim should be that you're always building up other people to have the skills. It needs to be about power sharing, 
Uh, it can be about decentralised and large-scale decision-making. There are tools like Lumio and really interesting tech solutions where you can poll and you can actually have deliberative uh, and engaged uh, uh, democratic decision-making at scale. Um, you know, the Hong Kong protests are showing us some, you know, of the tech that they're using. It's really interesting. Uh, we need to democratise skills, knowledge, our history and our science. This, should, this shouldn't be elite things. Citizen science is really important. People understanding history and language is really important. And the last thing I'd say is that civil, trans, uh, civil resistance transforms communities. And I've seen it. And direct action prepares people for the times ahead. I don't think we're going to be okay. I think that we're headed for... Um, you know, potentially a horrifying future scenario. And for me, I'd like to... I guess I look at it as going down fighting. That's the, that's the phrase that I've got sort of stuck in my head. Uh, but the direct action and the skills and the work and the inspiration that people get from uh, non-violent resistance and working together is actually prepping us. It's actually building community. It's actually working to... Uh, build skills and um, and to radicalise and politicise people that wouldn't otherwise be, you know. The Lock the Gate movement is doing an amazing job of that. You know, people who were ready to stand up against fracking uh, in their area are now really political and they know how to win things now and, and that's really amazing. The the last piece that I would I would finish on is that um, electoral politics, I believe, has failed us miserably and totally. Um, and I think that there is a place for people to do the rebuilding work. I think there is a place for people to do the political work. Uh, but what we need at the grassroots of um, the protest movements and social movements is we need your support. We need you to have our backs. I just did a quick reality check on the different, different resources that groups have um, when I was... Um, uh, listening to Lydia talk about, thankfully, the ACF actually stepping up and putting some some money towards um, uh, towards resources for mob. Greenpeace has $20 million they had last year. GetUp, $11 million. ACF, $14 million. Market Force is one of the orgs that they were going after, 18 staff. Counteract, my organisation, has 2.5 staff days a week and a handful of volunteers around the country. Um, we're mentoring the school strike people. Um, we're talking to Extinction Rebellion about how to be better, training people all over the country, and the legal uh, advocacy and the legal rights work that we do. Uh, no one else is doing that. The EDO isn't doing that. Um, they're busy. You know, everyone is busy because we have attacks coming from so many different directions. I did want to give Senator Janet Rice a shout-out, who was the very first donor to Counteract um, when we re-kicked off our movement. So thank you, Senator. Um, you can all show leadership. Um, but what I'd say is just, like, we need resources, we need voices, we need support, we need to be able to protest to open the political space for other people to step in. And that, I think, is really critical. Uh, democracy means many things to many different people. But when I had a look at it, it means control, one of the, one of the uh, meanings is control of an organisation by the majority of its members. The majority, that's us. That's not the people with the most money. 
And another of the source translations is from, is from Greek, obviously it's Greek origins. So demos, the people, and I'm not sure how you pronounce this, kratia, uh, rule or power. So it means people power. Uh, so let's use that. Thanks. Thank you, Nicola. What a marvellous panel. Now, we have between 10 and, say, 20 minutes for questions. Yeah, okay. Hello, I'm Diane Evers. I'm actually an MP in the WA State Parliament. And two weeks ago, I presented a paper on the deliberative process, uh, suggesting it for the forestry industry there to the Minister for Forestry. Ah, this was written sorry. by Jeanette Hartskarp, who is one of the 21st century pioneers, I guess, in this, in this field. And I think it's very necessary, not only for forests, but we need to do it for uh, water allocations, for burning practices, hopefully climate change one day. The difficulty I see, and the bit I have no control in, is how do we make the government actually take note of it and put in practice what comes out of these deliberative processes? Um, what I find really interesting is the number of meetings I have across the political spectrum and the politician I'm talking to, where yeah, I know. I actually know already. I know climate change is real. I know that we need to transition, but we can't talk about it. Not, not the Greens. But it, it's amazing. It just astounds me. There's this kind of... It's almost like they don't know their own power, and there's this real fear around actually doing what's right or even talking about what needs to happen. And um, how do it... So the question that I'm playing with at the moment in Queensland, because we've got a Queensland election at the end of next year, how do we make it politically safe? How do we get mobilise the community support for the leaders who do want to do the right thing and are brave enough to stand up? How do we make it safer for them to stand up publicly and go, yes, we need action and yes, we need to transition um, Queensland away from coal? So we're doing a whole range of forums um, across Queensland and weirdly it's going to be funded by the Queensland Government to talk about the transition away from coal. So stay tuned to see how that goes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, so again, when people ask me what I do, I, I, I talk about sort of research I do, and I and they wonder about the impacts. I, I, I sort of quip that uh, we've got all the answers. The, the challenge is getting people to listen to us, and, and the same issue applies there. But uh, there's, a, there's 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 a, it works on a few different levels, uh, and, and sometimes it is a matter of having the, the right idea and the right moment um, as well. And the Irish case is a really good example here. You know, it really was a, a situation where an island was at its lowest post-global financial crisis and so on. And, and this window opened up, and we sort of call it a deliberative moment, if you like, you know, where, where there was nothing left. There was nowhere to go, and then suddenly this new alternative uh, appeared and, and, and the momentum built behind it. So you know, part of the challenge is to actually try and build towards that moment, but also you know, have the, the ideas to actually you know, capture uh, that moment as well. But even within that... The, the things like the, the two, there's one, one sort of a, a, a sort of a carrot and a stick uh, side of things. Part of the resistance uh, for, by decision makers against these sorts of processes is they're perceived as being a sort of a challenge to that power, uh, and they have historically been presented as, and this is an entirely legitimate view uh, in some respects, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that it's bypassing. You know, sort of politics, but as a, as a sort of a, a, a tool or resource uh, for politics to actually help make good decisions and actually reframe the possibilities uh, of how these processes can be used. Uh, and, and part of, you know, connected to that was the experience of Ireland again, was bringing politicians into the process itself, and, and they were part of, of that experience. Mm -hmm. 
And, and so, so Tim talked about this. When, when, when people are involved in these sorts of processes, it, it, there, there is a completely different sense of what's possible uh, in terms of how we engage with politics. And just about, you know, it's almost a universal experience, and that also extends to, to decision makers as well. Oh my God, you mean we're human as well? Crikey. That was facetious, folks. Sorry, that clearly did not work as a joke. Please, carry on. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's kind of the question in a lot of ways, and I always feel bad not having a, like a really solid answer to it. But it seems to me a lot of this sort of change happens at fringes rather than in the centre and then works its way in. I think this is true of a lot of sort of innovations. Um, so this is one of the reasons why I'm sort of very pleased to see a permanent citizens' assembly started as part of the Belgian parliament. Um, it, it provides a model and, you know, hopefully an inspiration. Even within that parliament, the other language group, because it's basically the German language group within the Belgian parliament mm. that is running it. So it, it provides a, um, uh, a model for the other language groups within that parliament to do it. So I think, you know, this, it's, there's no easy answer. It's, you know, it's the slow boring, slow boring of hard boards, politics, um, of starting at the edges and working your way in. Maybe, I don't know, this is kind of just off the top of my head, but, you know, I'm getting parliamentarians involved at their local electorate level um, in setting up these sorts of things rather than approaching them as a parliamentarian, in, you know, in the, in the central parliament sort of mm. thing. Um, I'm, I'm sure citizens could put together, um, bring to bear influence on them as local members um, to, to set up stuff in their electorate and, you know, there could be a cascading effect there. Mm. Nicola, do you want to add anything to that? Okay, next question. Uh, lady down here. Thanks, everyone. Um, my question's about um, deliberative d democracy, and I apologise if I don't quite get it, but I'm just wondering what do you do about power, um, and particularly localised power, because I, I get that you're sort of talking about sort of, you know, at a national level, but power circulates at local levels too. One of the most local levels power patriarchy circles is in the household where women are being beaten and killed daily. Um, but, you know, whiteness circulates, white supremacy circulates, settler colonialism circulates. So I'm just wondering what you do with that when you've got these quite white spaces or quite patriarchal spaces and people are being encouraged to share. Um, how safe are these spaces for, for people to be in them? Um, and what do you do about that, those relations of power? Fabulous question. That's a, that's a good question. Um, the, so deliberate democracy uh, I mean, has historically been critiqued uh, for, for, for not responding to these questions of power. And uh, I have a, a colleague, uh, Nicole Curato, who's actually written a book uh, on these dimensions, and she's very well versed with these issues. She, she actually uh, is from the Philippines uh, originally, and uh, she works in that space. Uh, she was actually, interestingly, in the Philippines, she was the, the young man, she got the young man of the year award um, in the Philippines because there was no uh, provision for, for a woman um, there. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, but it experiences the, you know, the, 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 the operation of power in those sorts of spaces. And uh, there's, there's all sorts of dimensions to this. And let, let's actually think about the power within the process. If power, uh, deliberative democracy operates effectively to the extent that 
that the, that the only power that operates is, is actually the ability to listen and, and, and reason and work through together. And if these power dimensions, like with identity and, and, and depending on who, who is talking actually has more voice, then the process is not deliberative. Uh, now, the question is actually how you, how you achieve that. Uh, and and there are, you know, what we do know is that if you have a process that is well designed, you, you, you do see a dissipation of those sorts of dynamics. But when it comes to the power and responding to the power dynamics you know, within the local spheres and even national spheres, power operates in all sorts of ways and, and there's material power and economic power and so on. But there's also the idea of discursive power the ability to frame the conversation, to frame the language, to actually talk about um, you know, political issues in ways that, that, that suit your terms, and, and, and money is a big part of that story. But one of the potential, really strong potentials here is to actually harness the power, the discursive power of these sorts of processes to help change those sorts of conversations, to change the nature of language, the way we actually talk about these sorts of issues, which actually ultimately make it so, we, so Tim talked about you know, sort of socialism being about lots of meetings uh, and, and being hard work. When you actually look at the effects of these sorts of processes, I'm going to make up a statistic on the spot, but 75%, 80% of the process involves actually undoing the damage of these sorts of you know, mechanisms of discursive power rather than actually building something ideal. If we actually you know, can actually contribute to a public discussion, which means that we don't have to go through the stress of having to deal with all these sorts of claims that are wrong, misleading, and so on, then we have the ability to actually make good decisions, you know, work, work on issues together. And that's, that's a function of discursive power, and that's one of the potentials of these sorts of processes to actually help us even relearn what we actually already understand is good politics and, and good discussion. Um, my background training is not in deliberative democracy. It's in participatory action research working in Asia and Pacific. And I learnt the most about that issue in the Pacific um, and in the Philippines, actually, um, around sometimes you need a number of different opportunities and different conversation spaces to make it safe. So it's things like going to where people are, um, separating out groups to make it safe so people can have really... So we would meet with women separately to men, we would meet with young people separately to older people, um, we would, you know, for women in particular, um, go to where they're doing the washing in, in the river because that's actually where a lot of conversations and decision-making happen. I'm not saying this to romanticise it. It's actually if you're genuine about meeting people where they're at, you have to go with where they're at and you need to be flexible and creative around that. But it's how you set things up before then bringing people together. So it's not just the separation. It's how you create the space of then when people are ready how you set that up space, uh, that space safely and who speaks first, mm. what mechanisms you use. So instead of just voting publicly, having different kinds of things where people can prioritise using stickers and, and all sorts of things. So there's a lot of tools that we can use actually from um, grassroots economic development practices and there's a long tradition around decision-making from different, different areas. Um, I think it just it goes to something that I, I didn't uh, get a chance to mention, which is that our movements are only going to win uh, if they look like our society and what our society should look like and our decision-making structures, whether they are, you know, large-scale consensus decision-making in, um, in large activist groups or uh, using sortition processes or... Uh, deliberative uh, democracy, like we need to set those uh, pieces up with people that are going to be impacted 
not come in and, you know, like what, uh, again, what Lydia was saying before, you know, coming into these pre-set up processes like, uh, you know, wheeled out for Welcome to Country. I've been in a bunch of organising meetings with activists where, you know, people will organise an action and then talk to the mob later. Well, that's not the way you do it. And I would, I would hope that any, you know, structure that is looking at deliberative decision-making is actually representative and broad in itself so it's culturally safe, so it's safe for women, so it's safe for trans people, etc. Okay, we've got time for probably one, maybe two more quick questions. Um, let's go with the youth, the nice lady up with the perfectly coloured shirt. I'm older than I look. Um, <laughs> I'm still maybe younger than most people, though. Um, I am interested in this talk of diversity and difference and, I guess, these models that are wanting to encourage diversity of thought and opinions and stuff and how we bring those together. And I guess I'm interested in, as a, as a left green movement, are we ready for difference? Because my experience of being part of the so-called progressive movement is that we like difference as long as it's different like us and that we also still struggle with difference in, a, in an authentic way. Mm. So I'm interested in, um, yeah, are we, are we ready? Is this movement, this room of people, are we ready for difference and what does that look like for us? I think that's a question for every single one of us. Does anyone on the panel want to speak to that, Nicola? I mean, I think it, it's something to pass along. I think we need to be ready and I think we need to go to where people are at and, and what I've found when I'm working with quite diverse people is that we have got a lot more in common. We've got these similar values and so we need to actually go to the values and the, and the core principles of what we all care about, find that common ground and work from there. And, you know, I, I have found that, you know, I've been catered for by farmers who are, you know, dairy farmers and wanted to make sure that there was a vegetarian sausage available for me when I stayed at their place and taught them how to lock themselves to gates. So, you know, I, I actually think that there is a lot of willingness, um, uh, but we need to get a little bit over ourselves sometimes. I get asked this question a lot, and it's interesting because when we talk about diversity, we think about people of colour and age and gender, but actually I... I loved your question because a lot of the time I get asked by people in the progressive movement, oh my God, you go into coal mining regions, that must be so scary for you and, and rural Queensland. And I get offended by that because I grew up in sort of Western Queensland and then far North Queensland. And they're actually my family and my friends and my, four of my uncles are working coal fire plants. And I think that's a really interesting thing. And I was like, oh, and I didn't talk about that, but actually... We've all got in our identity different parts of ourselves, but it takes vulnerability and emotional work to look at ourselves, actually, because sometimes it's easier to be angry and to have a position that's very clear and you know, black and white and those we're right and they're wrong, but that's a defence mechanism. So sometimes it's about looking at ourselves and where we're at and dealing with our grief as well, which is often under a lot of the anger and wanting to make other people wrong. Um, and there's there's... A lot of resources around now to do that, and Paul Atkins is in the room and running a session tomorrow about working across different. So I encourage people to come to that. Um, but yeah, to actually connect, it it requires courage and vulnerability and listening. What a wonderful response! We've got time for one more question. 
interested in Nicola's point about the narrative, the new narrative, and no one's mentioned very much about media, and I don't think we've got many sessions here on media, even though that is the big unseen thing that forces all of us to think the way we do. Probably it's, un, you know, we, we can ch choose it or not choose it. Some of it's completely subliminal, but why do we have the ideas of democracy that we do have or the limitations on it that we do have? And so... I've been, you said, come from the grassroots, and I would like to know how to get more media and more encouragement for media. I need help. I do radio. I've done eight years of it, and I just interviewed the climate campaigners. It's climate change. I've interviewed Larissa. I've interviewed a lot of people in this room, Amanda, a lot of you. But I don't get much support. I don't get... People say, oh, no, I don't listen to that. Mm. Or, oh, yeah, pat me on the head. That's very good. But I'm... You know, it's connecting up all these people, the NGOs. They, as you say, put out their big press release, but they say, we don't want to get too political. Well, it is political, and I want to know, have you any concept of making a media, whether it's radio, print? I know a lot of it's online, but there's also that mainstream, even talk back. They, there's weaselly thoughts late night on the radio, I hear, absolutely horrible about the bushfires and Adam Bant versus Adam Bant, for example, the other night. Horrible. And that gets into people's subconscious, I think, 2am. So I think we need to fight back. And I don't think we're trying nearly hard enough. What do you think? Oh, <laughs> lots of stuff there. Um, one point that I would make really quickly, which I, I think is a slight aside, is that um, one of the opportunities that I believe that the really, really negative media that we've got against protesters, against dissent, against anyone, you know, who's not one of these quiet, shush Australians, um, is that, like, we're talk we need to talk in big picture. You know, like, protest is about hu human rights. It's about defending democracy. It's about, you know, I'm not personally into nationalist language, but, you know, it, it is, and, you know, it's Australian values, if that's what you want to talk about. You know, that, that standing together, that, you know, looking out for one another... You know, I think we actually need to take back that frame from the mainstream media and from the Murdoch press who are essentially advocating violence against peaceful activists and it's incredibly problematic. You know, I would actually like to see, you know, the media union, um, you know, challenging some of this, um, uh, you know, incredibly violent rhetoric which is leading to people actually being assaulted. Um, so, you know, so, so that's one point. The other is that, again, with the grassroots, we are resource... Um, light, um, but we've got, we need to share skills better. So I've been doing a little bit of work with an organisation called Digital Storytellers. We've done some collaborative work and they talk about using your phone uh, in really simple ways to, you know, turn around videos really quickly. I think we need to be using social media in a more savvy way. I think we need to be, I think more people need to be on Twitter because it actually helps drive debate and I try to tell activists to get on there and I find it really, um, really frustrating, particularly going back to West Australia, a one, a one newspaper town, and just going, like, we can actually drive our narrative. You know, the, the, again, the example with Yundamu, that wasn't being driven from mainstream media in any way, shape or form. That was young people on the ground using Twitter and social media. So, um, yeah, I think that's a few reflections. Thank you. That's a great question, and, and it is a big gap in, in what we've been discussing here. Um, so, yeah, 
there's some research that we, we would really love to do in this space, and I actually have an application in which I don't think we're going to get, which wanted to actually look at uh, something we might call sort of deliberative quality across different countries and, and what are the factors that contribute to it and, and looks at all sorts of things like you know, sort of structure of parliament and, and political systems and so on. But we suspect that one of the biggest um, factors contributing to the, to the differences is, is, is media quality, which you would measure potentially as media diversity for example, and it's clearly a, an issue, and you've hit the nail on, on absolutely on the head. Um, and if there was something, you know, there was a reform that we could do, we could we could implement that would potentially contribute to a, an improvement in the national conversation. That would probably be it. But it's also one of the hardest ones to do because the actual power of discourse and political power is actually tied up uh, in, in this as well. There are there are there are changes uh, in the landscape and, and online and bypassing these, these sort of traditional structures. I mean, we're, we're seeing a sort of incredible disruption in this sort of space. It's a, it's a really open question about where this goes from here, um, whether there's actually a sort of re-emergence of, of, of sort of media players that, uh, that have alternative voices, and there's an element of that as well, or whether it is completely distributed. But the problem is with that, there's, there is a real need, if we want to talk about a deliberative system, um, to, to have some mechanism that someone can work through the issues for you, can actually communicate them and digest them in ways that are in the public, the genuine public interest to know and understand rather than to frame them to actually try and push an, an, an agenda. And uh, the, 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 the idea of media has actually transformed in this sense. And part of that story, of course, is actually you know, sort of trying to change the culture in the media as well. But it, it's, it's a, I could go on at length uh, on this question, but it's, it's a really important one. Just quickly add something. Um, this is something I've probably spent the last 20 years um, arguing with journalists about. And um, I, I, it, it's really hard. There is an incredible culture of what you might call, what I called in when I was talking, flaccid centrism yeah, um, <laughs> amongst yeah. journalists who, you know, have, have this notion of, you know, on the one hand this, on the one hand that. Um, that, that sort of he said, she said sort of approach. These, these are really fundamental um, ways in which journalism are, are done. And it's really hard to get journalists to think outside those frames and realise how um, the power inherent in those frames, which is essentially conservative and sometimes violent. Um, and... Yeah, I'd, I'd say in the 20 years I've been having these arguments with people, I've got absolutely nowhere with them. The one little... Well, th th there's probably two glimmers of hope, I think. I, I agree that something like Twitter has a certain power to offer alternative frames and stuff like that. I don't think we'd have um, a Me Too movement around the world, for instance, without social media. I think that was framed entirely with the outside mainstream journalism. Um, Black Lives Matter in the United States is another example um, of that's Sorry? Yeah, robo-debt. You know, there, are, there is evidence of um, being able to push these issues in a meaningful way into the mainstream. But the other little um, glimmer of hope, I would suggest, that arises in the new media environment is that increasingly um, the mainstream media organisations are reliant on subscription, individual subscription, rather than advertising money. And I think as 
we, the audience, as the people paying the money for the subscriptions, one, we can choose which ones we choose to support, but I think it actually gives us a little toe in the door in terms of... I don't think we can expect journalists to cover um, the news in the way that we want just because we're the paying journalists, but I think we can force them to be much more transparent and we can demand things like much more diverse um, newsrooms um, by wielding the power of the money that we provide through subscription. This is, this is just starting as the new business model, um, but I think it does actually open the door a little bit. That was a fabulous session. Tim, you've done a marvellous job, as has Elisa bringing today together. So thanks to all our panellists. Thank you so much, Larissa, um, and all of our wonderful, wonderful panellists. Yeah, just very briefly, we, we, we can extend the lunch a little bit um, to about 2.15. Um, and I just wanted to say it's wonderful to see so many questions, hands up. Um, please just continue the conversation because that fundamentally is what this is all about. People will be around and we've got sessions all the way through the weekend to discuss these ideas with each other. So have a lovely lunch and please thank again Larissa, Nicola, Tim, Amanda and Simon. <laughs>